I'm Sabri Benishur with Latitudes. Today, we are on the move. We meet people who are moving ahead, moving home, and moving their tail feathers, like this Haitian dance teacher. If you walk into my class, you will see babies, teenagers, adults, senior citizens, and you'll see great sweating bodies. Dance therapy from Port-au-Prince to Boston. And if you were given just one day to leave your house and your country, what would you pack? I brought my two favorite books with me. And I put inside them a flower. I took it from our garden before I'm leaving. We find out what Syrian refugees take to remind them of home. And when Jose Luis Zelaya left his home in Honduras, he made sure he had his crocheting needles. I might be the fastest crocheter in the world. I am a student. I am a teacher. And I just happen to be an undocumented American. Come along for the ride with Latitudes after this news. This is Latitudes, a co-production of the Global News Partnership. WAMU 88.5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Sabri Benishore, and today Latitudes is on the move. Literally, I'm here in a taxi traveling the streets of Washington, D.C. with my driver... Uh, my name is Negeda Bebe. All right. And like many taxi drivers, Negeda has made some big moves in his life. Uh, originally, I'm from Ethiopia, and I live now in the U.S., and uh, I live in Maryland. <laughs> Negeda, you have not always driven a taxi your whole life. What did you do back in Ethiopia? Back in Ethiopia, I used to work for the government working on trade and business issues. And then after I left the government, I used to work for an international organization. Basically an economist. Yes, I was an economist. Yes, I am an economist. Was it difficult when you, when you got here? Did you try and find a job as an economist or, or working in a, some consulting capacity? Uh, yes. When I came, the first thing I did was to look for a job in my area of expertise. I tried a lot and I couldn't find any. And that must have been pretty frustrating. Yes, it is. How did you end up, of all things, driving a cab? I started driving a car because I had a plan to go to school. After I graduated in 2008 with a MBA, I couldn't find a job, and I'm still paying my student loan driving a cab. Right now, Mohammed Lee is also in Negeri's cab. He knows what it's like to be on the move, too. He came to the U.S. from Mauritania. He says Negeri's story sounds familiar. Mohammed connects immigrants with companies looking for bilingual staff. But he says these companies sometimes balk at hiring someone with an accent. I actually do staffing. I do multilingual recruiting. And unfortunately, there are some employees who will come to you with the notion that they're pursuing a diversity agenda. They're trying to diversify their workforce. Well, guess what? They're still reluctant to hire someone who would not project their company as a purely Western company, as a purely Anglo-Saxon company. If you speak with a heavy accent, then the customers will have a trouble understanding you. Then they'll feel like we're outsourcing our call center to India. It projects on their image. Sometimes it is so frustrating. You send your resume, probably somebody in the HR was not able to read properly your name, and they know that you are from somewhere foreign country. So they throw your resume on the side. Mohammed helps immigrants like Negede to get past these barriers. He coaches them on everything from building networks to accent reduction. He says that's just reality for now. The world is changing, though. Businesses are waking up to the importance of emerging markets. They're trying to figure out how is it that we can penetrate this market effectively. And the only key, the actual 
single key to do that is by leveraging global talent. Where does global talent from, come from? It comes from abroad. As for Nigede, he says he's not giving up. I have never imagined myself coming to the U.S. and driving a cab. But, you know, it's, it's every day a learning point. We need to push farther. I can contribute more than this. You can find out more about organizations working with immigrants like Negede at our website, latitudesradio.org. Taxi, taxi, tacos, taxi. I need a yellow taxi cab today. Need your taxi cab to take me away. I need a yellow taxi cab today, so take us, driver, take us far away. Jose Luis Zelaya came to the U.S. when he was 14 to escape gangs in his home country of Honduras. He managed to make his way through college at Texas A&M, and right now he's working on his master's in education. But Jose came without papers, so he hasn't been able to work most normal jobs. Instead, he crochets. He sells woven hats he calls dream beanies. Jose named them after the DREAM Act, which would offer a path to citizenship for young, undocumented immigrants who graduate from college or do two years of military service. Jose's even tried to set a world record in crocheting. Sarah Robertson brings us the story. My name is Jose Luis Elaya, and I might be the fastest crocheter in the world. I am a student, I am a teacher, and I just happen to be an undocumented American. Beanies. 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 My beanies are, are going towards my college degree and also to provide scholarship for other students. So then I have those with like flowers. and I have a website uh, that is called dreambeanies.net. So that's where people can find them, like make every color. I mean, whatever style people really want, people just got to tell me what to do and, I, and I'll make it. I even got into the point where I made a prom dress. <laughs> a girl wanted a prom dress, so I made her a prom dress. I learned to crochet when I was 13, when I was in Honduras. I was homeless. I still remember that corner. I still remember the stoplight. I still remember the trash that was around it. The people and the, and the smell of urine and the smell of nastiness and, and the lady sitting at a corner. She was sitting down and I remember the beanies on the floor and her making a sweater. So I just kept on looking at her. I saw how she was crocheting with the hook and the yarn and the position that she did it. And, and I just, I learned. <laughs> It's such a beautiful thing because, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my hands, how they move, and I cannot find an explanation of how they move that fast. Like, I don't, my brain doesn't think step by step, okay, you do this, then this, then that, then this, and that. This is what it's about. It's about using our talents to be able to show our nation and our country that we are not a burden to society, how much more ready we are to actually work and use our degrees. Whatever I gotta be. <laughs> Right now in graduate school, like, I want to be able to teach to be able to start making a difference in the classroom. I talk to students and I share with them my story, and I give them a bracelet that is out of crochet, and they wear them. So every school that I go to, students have crocheting bracelets that I make, and a lot of them take it really, really serious. Like, they hang it on their wall or they frame it, and so for them it means a lot to them. So I'll continue to crochet for them. Jose plans to teach math and ESL in a low-income school when he graduates. He's hoping the DREAM Act will be upheld by the next Congress so that he and thousands of others can normalize their immigration status. 
The Southeast Asian island of Singapore is a super-efficient city-state with glittering, ultra-modern skyscrapers. The men who actually construct those buildings aren't from Singapore. They're migrants who have come all the way from Bangladesh, India, and China, lured by jobs that pay many times what they would make at home. Some pay dearly for that opportunity. Their dreams are often derailed by injury or exploitation. But there's at least one person going to bat for them, an unflappable, mouthy American widow who's made their problems her problem. Francesca Segre introduces us. Little India, Singapore. It's a crush of bodies and bright colors. The smells of incense and marigolds mixed with pounding heat, humidity and business bustle. Down one of the side streets is a cheap Bangladeshi restaurant where tonight, like every weeknight, about 300 migrant laborers drop in for a free meal. These men have been injured and they aren't allowed to work while the government investigates their cases. This leaves them stranded in Singapore without income, food or a place to stay. Then they took away your work permit. They canceled the work permit. Fifty-eight year old Debbie Fordyce sits at a table outside the restaurant. She started the free food program about three years ago with a local advocacy group when she saw migrant men sleeping on the streets. As long as the worker is in Singapore, the employer has to provide food and housing for them, no matter what happens. But she says it doesn't always work out that way. They just don't want to pay. So often the employers might beat them might actually hire people to come and, and kidnap them to repatriate them. From her sidewalk office, Fordyce patiently interviews migrant workers. She learns of hands crushed in machinery, workers locked in shipping containers, and agents taking placement fees but never providing jobs. Majibar, a 24-year-old Bangladeshi who's a regular here, suffered a stroke while at work and collapsed. His brain began to swell, so doctors removed part of his skull. He lifts up his hair to reveal a concave hollow in his head. Fordyce showed him how to collect insurance money for treatment. She's helping me. If she never helped me, I cannot get all, all the insurance money. I cannot get. I respect her. Everybody respect her. We love her also. We love her. Majibar and four other men are living with Fordyce while they recover from various injuries. The neighbors in her upscale condo complex aren't that welcoming of her guests. They wonder why she brings these men home. She wonders why they don't. Bringing migrant workers into my home, I feel like I'm safer with them than I am with my own children. Fordyce helps the men understand doctor's orders and government correspondence. But sometimes she gets fed up with bureaucracy and resorts to more creative tactics. Once, when a man had trouble getting paid, Fordyce cornered his boss in a back alley. And I said, you're the guy that owes him money. You owe him $800. Is that right? Yes. He said, yes. I said, can I see your work permit? And I just took it from him. And I said, now I know who you are. Here's your work permit back. I expect you to pay him by next week. And he did. Gadfly social work can be dangerous in Singapore. The country is run like a business, and cheap labor is one key to its success. It is fiercely protective of its image, and it doesn't take kindly to those who might tarnish it. But that doesn't stop Fordyce. She thinks the government doesn't crack down enough on cheating and abusive employers. Of course it's not enough. <laughs> Why should they? It works. Just talking about migrant rights can be a fast track to trouble here. Not surprisingly, Fordyce has a delicate relationship with the government. She's well known at the Ministry of Manpower. Kandavel Pariasami is constantly responding to her queries. 
Sure, she can be a nuisance, but Conda also recognizes that she's a key point of contact for workers who are too afraid to ask their bosses or the government for help. That said, he believes their struggles should be put in perspective. To paint a context, when you have one million workers, even you have workers who have problems, the larger picture, I think majority of employers are fair, law-abiding, and I think majority of workers do express satisfaction working in Singapore and they're happy as well. Kanda says the government does enforce labour laws and regulations. But when the system fails them, workers turn to Debbie Fordyce. They call her mother, auntie, even Mother Teresa. <laughs> I hate that. I put up with auntie, but I hate these other things. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. I'm a, I'm a cantankerous old lady. Curmudgeon or saint, she's Singapore's own volunteer vigilante, pushing for workers' rights any way she sees fit. For Latitudes, I'm Francesca Segre in Singapore. Moving back, going home. That's next on Latitudes. Stay with us. We are bearing. Vamos. Let's go. Abrain. Oniva. Pechon. Haide. Haide de trogobame. I'm Sabri Benishore, and you're listening to Latitudes. Today, we're all about moving. And often when we think of people moving from one place to another or from one country to another, we think of a fresh start, a new life. Sometimes, though, your new life is your old life. It's going home. And quite a few Mexicans are doing that these days, and not only because jobs are scarce here in the U.S. They're going home to help produce a traditional drink that's becoming really popular in bars across the U.S. Lauren Madelon explains. It's after midnight at Bar Añejo in Manhattan. Añejo means aged. On this night, in this place, it means the nectar of a Mexican plant that's been lovingly grown, and you're about to sip it. Mezcal is tequila's cousin. Both are products of two things, the agave plant and astonishing skill. But unlike tequila, mezcal isn't mass-produced. Each batch is unique. And most of the people here have never tasted it. It's wonderfully smooth. Yes, it's great, powerful, smoky taste. Mezcal bars are increasingly popular in the U.S. in cities like New York, Austin, Denver, and Los Angeles. The Mexican agency that certifies mezcal says exports have gone from 100,000 gallons to 170,000 in the last two and a half years. But this isn't a story about where mezcal ends up or why it's in fashion. This is about where mezcal's made, how it's made, and how an unexpected thirst for mezcal in the U.S. is bringing some people home to Mexico. The village of San Luis del Rio, in the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca, is out there. They say God won't find you if you slip off the twisting gravel roads that look like a ribbon on the mountains. The Sierra Madre. <laughs> Getting there is easy if you have a sturdy four-wheel drive. From the state capital, Oaxaca City, you snake through small towns and settlements. Then you climb along a steep dirt road, passing the Otaguana and carpets of cactus. Two hours later, you're in San Luis. Jorge Mendez is 27, a mezcal producer, or mezcalero. We and our families depend on mezcal, he says. His face is burnished by the sun. 
One hand grips a machete. The other adjusts a faded blue baseball cap. In his family's still, where the mezcal is made, a horse pulls a stone wheel over chunks of roasted agave. The mash under the wheel is fermented and then double distilled over a smoky fire. There used to be a thousand people in this village. Now, Mendez says, half of them live in the U.S. With all those people gone, it's hard to find skilled mezcal makers. He says almost everyone who left would be helping to produce mezcal with a home. It's really hard for one person, he says. You have to harvest the plant, gather firewood, grind the plant and distill it. But these days, Jorge Mendez has help. <laughs> That's Jorge's brother, Fabian. People will return, he says. Fabian lived illegally in the U.S. for a time. Then one day his family called and said, come home, there's work now. The hope is that if mezcal's popularity keeps rising, everyone will come home to work. After all, your friends and family are here. This is your village. It's your own country. If you're Mexican, you have to come back. Part of the reason Fabian could come back is because of a guy named Pedro Quintanilla. He buys Marca Negra Mezcal from the Mendez family. At first, it was intended to, to be a business, but now it's become much more than that. Unlike tequila, which is mass-marketed, Mezcal production is a mostly homegrown cottage industry. Individual buyers, like Quintanilla, buy directly from each family and sell directly to a distributor. The idea, he says, is that producers like the Mendez family pocket more of the proceeds. All the profits come down all the way down to the producer who are people that have been uh, neglected and forgotten for ages, for centuries. And economically, it's, it's amazing because they're generating jobs. People are coming back from the U.S. and everybody's happy. They rejoin with their families. Everybody wins. These days, more and more Mexicans are returning home. That's not always because work is waiting, but because a sputtering U.S. economy doesn't provide the opportunity it once did. A recent study by the Pew Research Center says about the same number of Mexicans left the United States last year as arrived. That hasn't happened in 40 years. In San Luis, at least there's some work waiting. El mercado está creciendo. Another buyer, Jorge Ramirez, says the market is growing. He's so bullish about Mezcal's prospects that he started a co-op for producers. But something else may be at play as well. Using an age-old rural expression, he says Mexicans would rather eat beans in their own house than live a precarious life elsewhere. For Latitudes, I'm Lorne Madelon in Oaxaca, Mexico. Cascada de luz, te quiero alcanzar, llegar a ser parte de ti, New York, New York, mis pasos a ti. Ay, Mika, ¿cómo está? 
How are you? I'm going to shower, shave, and get ready to wait for the taxi. That's Herman Marino talking to his niece on his way to the airport. He's heading back to his native Colombia. He is, to use a newly popular phrase, self-deporting. Marino spent 11 years in New York working for a company that cleaned buildings. He applied to become a permanent resident of the U.S., but his petition was turned down, and he decided to leave rather than stay here illegally. Reporter Jesse Hardman caught up with Marino, watching the sunset from his apartment in Lower Manhattan. It was his last night in New York. It's the best view in Manhattan, always a very special view of the city. The sunset sometimes here is like a fantasy. The sky turns reddish-orange, and the clouds take on amazing shapes. The whole panorama is like watching a fantasy movie. The work I did here was the lowest level possible. It gave me lots of peace. Because in none of the jobs I did here did I feel the pressure from co-workers that they wanted my job. What happens when somebody works as a manager, a secretary, somebody who makes a lot of money? The people closer to them want their jobs to make that money. This causes trouble, conflict. In one way, I felt happy in my work because nobody envied me. I was hoping that I'd be able to live and work the rest of my life here in New York. My bosses said I couldn't keep working for them because of my status. I asked if I could work to save a little money to go back to Colombia with. When they knew I didn't have much money to get back to Colombia, the company gave me $1,000 to buy my plane ticket home. They had a goodbye party for me. I didn't think it would be as nice as it was. The woman at work cooked for me. They prepared a really nice party. Candles, flowers. It felt like a goodbye party for the president. People were sad I had to leave. The majority of them didn't want me to go. There wasn't anything I could do. The law is the law, and there's no way to change it. I don't want to be illegal. It won't benefit me. I won't be calm. It's not good to be in that position. The people who actually have the power in this country, they don't want reform. And if they do, it will be to kick everyone out. We're going to turn now to a man who moves not out of sorrow or resignation, but out of joy. For him, movement is a lifeline. We're talking about dance. We caught up with Haitian dancer and teacher Jean Apollon in his studio in Boston. If you walk into my class, you will see babies, young teenagers, adults, senior citizens. You will see everything like this, and you will see live musicians who's playing very good music, and you'll see great sweating bodies. And that's pretty much what you're going to see. <laughs> what, what are some of the moves like? I hear it's incredibly intense. <laughs> it's, it is intense. 
it's very intense because you have to be on a flat back, you have to be on the bent knees, and your arms is like open side to side. Your legs are trying to open side to side in, in the regular beat. And, it's a, and it has a lot of intricate movement into it that we do, which makes it very beautiful. Take me back to how you got started. Since I was born, I really felt like I was supposed to dance. And my family was very against it. And when I become 12, I think, you know, they offered a scholarship for a dance school in Haiti. And I ended up taking the scholarship without my parents' consent. My parents was furious when they heard that I was dancing. And they asked me to stop dancing. And I told them that I wasn't dancing, that I was just taking volleyball practice. So I had a volleyball bag and also a dance bag. And so when did you get really serious about dance? My father ended up being getting killed in 1991. My father was very involved in politics. After this tragedy, I was very numb for like maybe three months. And I started to dance again, and I was going to dance practice every day. And that's when dance really saved me, because I was being a little bit healed without having a therapist. So... When I was going back to dance, that's what really gave me my healing and my understanding to keep on going. So after your father was killed, you moved to Boston to live with your mother. Did you just keep dancing here? I spent 10 years here dancing, and I went to, to Alvinelli Dance Theater in, in New York. And after I left Alvinelli, I went to Joffrey Ballet. That's where I had my degree in dance. And I was keep on dancing and still living through that Haitian folkloric dance. I was still teaching it here in Boston and really doing a lot with Haitian dance. Did dance help you stay connected to your home culture? Yes, a lot, a lot. Because, you know, remembering the steps, remembering the names, the vocabulary, and also remember the beauty of the costumes that we used to wear when I was performing in Haiti just really helped me to stay very true to my culture and connected. At what moment did you decide you needed to go back? That was in 2000 when I first went to visit in Haiti to see the same tragedies are around. You're still having people not able to go to school. You're still having people not able to eat. You're still having people not able to live properly. It was very sad, and I needed to do something about it. And I know that I didn't have money to give to the people in Haiti, but I knew that I had something that was very, very important, which is dance. To take dance class in Haiti, you have to have major U.S. dollars. So I felt like it was very needed for me to go there, and, and I start to teach this workshop every July, and we have a major show at the end of the performance, which is very beautiful. And when the earthquake in 2010 really devastated your country. What happened to your dance project? After the earthquake, because, you know, funny enough, I don't know, sadly enough, before the earthquake happened, we were in Haiti, and we were talking to those kids about what was the hope they have for Haiti. And each and every one of them said Haiti should crash down and to revive again with some new people in it because they felt like they were very hopeless. And suddenly enough, I was in Haiti in December, and I came back to the United States and, you know, in January, suddenly the earthquake happened. And I was very shocked to see the testimony that the kids gave that previous year really did happen. We had a lot of kids who died from the earthquake. A lot of, you know, of our students were dismissed and we didn't know where they were. 
So we felt like it was important that we go back to Haiti. So that July 2012, we went to Haiti and we had kids who were pretty much paralyzed from the damages that they had, the injuries that they had, and they still came to class. They were all there sitting down. The people who couldn't dance, they were sitting down watching the class and really inspired by what we were doing. That really confirmed it for me that that's what we need to be doing in Haiti because to see after the earthquake and all this misery these people were, they were still around us trying to really do something, trying to still move, trying to still dance and really find a therapy to what we were doing. That was Jean Apollon, who dances and teaches in Boston, Massachusetts, and in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. You heard Jean talk about the resilience of the Haitian people, and that's a trait that's come in handy over the years as they've coped with violent dictators, political upheaval, hurricanes, and, of course, the earthquake in 2010. But for many in this very poor country, every day is a test of their resilience. Jesse Hardman brings us the snapshot of day-to-day survival in Port-au-Prince. Up and down, down and up. These are the two directions in Port-au-Prince. It's an unforgiving place, this mountain of a town, one that plays out its history, its politics, and its complexity in a raw daily commute. The first descent starts before dawn, around 4 a.m. It has to. Otherwise, you won't make it to market by 6 and you won't get a prime spot to sell your mangoes, grapefruits, cell phone chargers, and t-shirts. Step by step, hopeful sandals and dusty dress shoes, the same used for weddings, baptisms, graduations, and every other occasion, make their way downhill from the ramshackle houses at the mountaintop. Around 7 a.m., the second commute begins, slowly pressing uphill. The gardeners, security guards, cooks, and nannies are heading to the mansions that house Port-au-Prince's elite. Carefully they ascend. One step, two step. They shift from the road to a small sliver of dirt or grass as their employers speed down with ease and abandon, smashing the road into pieces with Land Rovers and Toyota pickups. Businessmen, politicians, foreign ambassadors, and UN coordinators are shielded from the growing heat by tinted windows, air conditioning, and designer sunglasses. Their vehicles blast these laboring pilgrims walking up the hill with a cloud of exhaust, a kind of dark, toxic bonjour to bring in the day. As they head up Port-au-Prince's winding spine, locals hit Montagnoir, the stretch of road known as the Dark Mountain, a neighborhood that now hosts one of Haiti's darkest figures, former dictator Baby Doc Duvalier. Instead of being in prison, Baby Doc is free to gaze down on the mess he and his father, Papa Doc, wrought during decades of mayhem, human rights abuses, and self-enrichment. Meanwhile, the people still move, as they always have, Up and down, down and up. For Latitudes, I'm Jesse Hardman. So you've probably heard people say, ugh, I need to move. Well, there's needing to move, and then there's needing to move. 
evicted by war. That's next on Latitudes. I think I'm going to have to move, people. I've got to move out of my neighborhood. Hey, I said I'm going to have to move. I've got to get out of my neighborhood. Welcome back to Latitudes. I'm Sabri Beneshore. Our show is all about movement today. I am on the subway. This is my normal commute to work. I either ride my bike or hop on the metro. I'm heading to the studio to talk to someone who also commutes to work, but his work is in a war zone. Reporter Tom Peter thought he'd be smuggling himself into Syria to report on the conflict there. But when he arrived at the border with Turkey, it was under rebel control and it was wide open. So Tom commutes to war. Each morning you get up and, you know, you drive over the border and work in Syria until about sunset and then, uh, you know, drive back into Turkey. And, you know, of course, the big advantage of this is that a lot of the the bombing or artillery strikes happen in the, the evening. So you, you, you remove that risk. And then the other thing that's convenient is I had access to internet and electricity, which wouldn't have been an assured thing in, inside Syria. But, you know, it creates a very kind of surreal existence. I was just going to ask, that must make it, the whole thing seems so surreal to be transported each day from stability to chaos in that way. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just weird. So, I mean, you know, to give you an example of this dichotomy, I mean, you could have a day like where I was at this bombing and, you know, you go from that to after one day after I'd finished writing my story, I was just decided to get a haircut and, you know, through this kind of miscommunication ended up getting like a, a mud facial as well. And then, you know, the next day you go back in and you're interviewing a guy as he is searching through rubble, trying to find half of his brother's body and talking to other refugees who've had these mental and emotional breakdowns. Then you go back over the border into Turkey and you're getting miffed because someone gave you, you know, chicken when you'd ordered beef kebabs or something. Can you describe your daily commute? Yeah, the, the daily commute was, oddly enough, I would say it was actually, I mean, kind of peaceful a lot of the time because you're driving through the, the Syrian countryside and uh, it's really beautiful. It's got this kind of rich red soil and, uh, you know, olive trees and uh, you have this very peaceful setting. You know, it can be punctuated by uh, moments of, of real terror. You know, for example, one day when we were driving in, we saw a lot of villagers kind of scurrying inside and trying to get out of the way and it turned out that a jet was circling and, and they weren't certain if it was going to bomb the village and or sometimes they, they, they were saying oh, these jets might strafe the road if they see cars. So, you know, things like that can happen and it's, uh, it gets to be a bit terrifying. But uh, for the most part, I mean, it's, you know, a long two-hour drive if you're going all the way into Aleppo and I guess it's a nice time to have some, some quiet to think and, and reflect. When you get back each day, how do you decompress? Um, uh, the way people decompress, I guess it's different for everyone. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I, I, I find that I, I care about a lot more when, I, when I'm doing kind of dangerous work is like uh, gossip. But the, I mean, it's my job to go into places and, and really focus on people who are having these just horrible things happen to them. So it's, it's in a weird way, it's really refreshing to just spend time indulging, talking to someone about like a relationship that's going south or, 
you know, my boss is such a jerk. He did this or that. Can you believe that? And I, I really, uh, really relish uh, those sorts of conversations. Does that disconnect make you feel guilty in some way between war coverage and then and then gossip? No, not at all. I mean, you know, I think it's it's this misconception that like if if you live in a war zone that uh, you know every second of your life is going to be consumed by uh, thinking about this this struggle and the cause and all that stuff. Even if you're in a place where you're you're sitting in a, a room, you know, in a basement taking cover while it's being shelled and you're in there for a while, uh, you you might end up having that same sort of uh, conversation about, oh, I, you know, I wonder if Jane back at home is, is still really serious or, you know, she she dating me because, you know, this is just a short-term thing. I, I, whatever kind of weird conversation you'd have about relationships, you, you'd, you'd transplant that to a guard tower in Iraq or a, a bunker in Syria, and, and people are having those conversations. They certainly, I mean, that's not to diminish uh, the strong feelings they have about the political situations they're in, but wherever you go, people are people, and uh, they want to have that that sense of, you know, a normal life, even if they're in incredibly abnormal, difficult circumstances. Well, good luck, Tom, and thanks a lot for talking to us. Yeah, my pleasure. Tom Peter reports for the Christian Science Monitor. You can find a link to a story about commuting to Syria on our website, latitudesradio.org. Of course, many refugees don't have the luxury of commuting. When they cross the border, it's usually one way. Reporter Dale Gavlak asked Syrian refugees in Jordan and Egypt, when you have to leave your home, what do you take with you? I brought my two favorite books with me, and I put inside them a flower. I took it from our garden before I'm leaving. It's a rose. The most important thing that I have Skype and my mobile and computer to get information from Syria and deliver it to the media so they know what is going on in Syria. I carried nothing with me except my clothes and my children's clothes. And I brought my wife's photo. My wife was shot by a sniper. She was going to buy milk for the children. This is her ID card. This is the only photo I had of her. In Thailand's deep south, more than 200,000 people have had to leave their homes because of fighting between the Thai state and Malay Muslim separatists. In most of Thailand, the majority of people are Buddhist, but in the South, the majority are Muslims. Muslim separatists complain of human rights abuses and say the Thai state doesn't respect their identity. The violence has killed around 5,000 people since the conflict escalated in 2004. Andrea Wenzel takes us to meet one woman who had to leave home. This is Duangsuda Nuisipab. We're in a small Buddhist village in southern Thailand. Duang points to a circle of bricks next to the building that had once been her home. I had a plan to build this thing and turn it into a fish pond. This yard is littered with abandoned ambitions. She shows us where her mother tended her garden and where her father kept his fighting chickens. But the family gave all this up. Back in the car, Duang explains why. 
When the violence began in 2004, her father was shot dead. Three years later, her grandfather was killed. So was his neighbor. The door was ajar, so I went in and saw him lying there. His hands were clenched, and he had no head. The family thinks Muslim militants were responsible for all the deaths, but no one was ever caught. After the attack, Duong moved half an hour away to the town of Patani. There, she found support from an unexpected source. Our radio program, its name is The Voice of the Women from the Deep South. Soraya Jamjuri is meeting with a dozen women at the university here where she does community outreach work. Most of the women are Muslim and wear colorful hijabs. Duong, with her exposed short hair, sticks out. But everyone here shares one thing in common. They've all lost loved ones in the insurgency. They talk in the radio about their feeling to make Buddhists and Muslims understand each other. And they show, although they are victims from the violence, they can overcome their hatred. That's what Duong's trying to do. Visiting her old village, she does what she can to connect the Buddhists who stayed with the neighboring Muslim community. She sits with her former Muslim neighbor, Mei Ya. They chat as they make palm sugar. Well, we don't really think of each other as enemies or anything. We are actually friends. Mei Ya says before the attack on Duong's grandfather, Buddhists used to come by regularly to buy sugar or just to talk. But now, Duong is one of the only Buddhists she sees. Duong knows the work she does is not popular with all Buddhists. Some of them don't like the Muslims. But for me, um, I feel that I'm kind of trying to be in the middle because I think that not all of the people are bad. Duong knows there's a lot she can't control. She can't force Thai authorities and Muslim militants to the negotiating table. But she can remind them of how they used to live in peace before the insurgency. I think it might encourage people to think whether they have forgotten that we used to be very good to each other. Duong sees her small efforts as a way to honor the memory of her grandfather. He always had Muslim friends. For Latitudes, I'm Andrea Wenzel, Patani, Thailand. Andrea Wenzel reported from Thailand on a fellowship with the International Reporting Project. Noi Tamasatian contributed to the story. Apurate. Up, 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 hurry. Khirakare. Isoide. Burze, burze. Ajalekon. Dipeshtwa. Ali. It's not just people around the world who are on the move. Commodities, billions of tons of them, are whizzing around the planet every year. In Cuba, where a U.S. trade embargo has been in effect for decades, many commodities are in scarce supply. Musician Stephen Woodruff found that out on a trip to the island when his guitar teacher, Felix, asked to be paid in guitar strings. In Cuba, strings for musical instruments are hard to come by. Stephen first discovered the problem when he wandered into a museum exhibit of instruments built by a well-known violin maker. The violins were strung with fake strings. I knew right away what the deal was, you know, he just didn't have the money to, to string the things up. A package of strings costs maybe $30. Cubans are making 15 a month. 
and so the possibility of buying them is zero. Cubans are, are very resourceful. They make a lot with very little there. You know, the bass players, for instance, when their strings would break, they would take the, the two ends of the strings and tie them together in a square knot and just put the thing back on the, on the instrument. Making a, a violin or a guitar, that's possible because wood's available. The problem is that after that, where do you get the strings? Because that represents a different kind of technology that you just can't invent out of cleverness. So my brother, who lives in Japan, I got him to make a contact with the, the Kyoto Symphony in Kyoto. And he would regularly stop by their offices, and the players there would take the strings off their instruments and just put them in a big box, and then he would mail them to me. The customs inspector gave me a really hard time about what I was going to do with them. He kept insisting I was going to sell them. I got the feeling that he was an inch away from just taking them and doing whatever, which would have been a huge blow because it represented a year's worth of unwinding strings, cleaning them off with alcohol and steel wool to get the rosin and the sweat and grime off them, rolling them back up in packages, labeling them, making sets. You know, it was a considerable amount of work. So there, there are risks, you know, and, uh, but the risks are worth it because the place, there's an ethos there that's in the air and it's thick. You know, you feel like you could just cut it with a knife. It's, it's really a one-off country. There's no, no place really like it. Stephen Woodruff spoke to reporter David Weinberg. With so much moving going on, people, cars, commodities, it's inevitable there'll be some collisions along the way. And that's especially true in the world's most populous country. India's capital, Delhi, is a really congested place. But it's not just the streets that are crowded. The skies are, too. Look up, and you can see hundreds of paper kites flying above you. And those kites are often in competition with another kind of kite, the black kite. It's a bird of prey. When these animals get injured, two brothers race to the rescue. Adam Warner has the story. Travel into the winding alleys of Old Delhi. Past frenzied motorbikes and rickshaws, spices, sweets, and produce stands, hanging wires and huddled friends. It's here you'll find a hospital and a house for birds. First floor, uncle lives. Second floor, we live. And on the fourth floor, where the birds live. That's Nadim Shahzad. He and his brother, Mohammed Saad, are in their early 30s. They've been running a bird shelter here since 2003. There are owls in the bedroom, pigeons on the stairs, vultures by the kitchen, and everywhere there are black kites. Black kites are scavengers found in huge numbers throughout New Delhi. Climb up a narrow staircase to the brothers' rooftop, and you'll find nearly a hundred of them. If you come after sunset, you can count that they'll be around 130 or 140. 30, 40 birds will visit us in the nighttime, and they sleep here, and in the morning they fly away. The birds are nestled in a small aviary. Most are here because they were hit by the strings of paper kites. The strings, called manja, are coated with glass powder. That's because here in India, kite flying is competitive. The goal is to slash into another person's kite and make it crash. Look out over Old Delhi, and you'll see dozens of kites in the air at any given time. 
You also see a similar number of black kites. Accidents are inevitable. Nadim and Saad get calls from diplomats, firefighters, police, even the prime minister's home. Today, a young boy named Nabil stops at the brother's house to deliver an injured bird. I found the bird. A few kids were dragging it with a thread. When I found it, one of its wings had shredded. The story is a common one. Black kites are seen as a bad omen by many here, especially Hindus. Most people are afraid to help the birds, but Nabil is unfazed. These birds are a wonderful creation of nature, and I bring them to the hospital so they will be saved. But this bird is too severely injured. Its wounds have atrophied and are no longer operable. Saad euthanizes it as a matter of respect. It's that kind of compassion for these creatures no one else cares about that motivates the brothers. But those good deeds have just about taken over their lives. They do have jobs, making soap dispensers. But aside from that, Nadim says they don't have time for much else. We do not have any vacations. We don't have any holidays. Seven days working in a week. Suddenly our phone rings and we have to rush off. The two brothers race all over Delhi on their motorbikes piling on box after box of injured birds. Once they juggled eight boxes of birds on one motorbike. There are two other brothers in Delhi who care about the birds in their own way. Rafiq and Arif are flying kites on their roof. They took up the sport more than 30 years ago, but they don't like to cut the birds. Arif says he tries to avoid hitting black kites when he can. So he's come up with a technique to avoid the birds. If I keep the kite stiff, the bird just hits it, so it will not get tangled and badly injured. Not all birds are so lucky. Back at Nadim and Saad's hospital, another bird has arrived. Its leg is badly injured. The man who brought it here says no one else would help. They're surprised that I wanted to take it to the hospital. People think that if you care for animals, you're crazy. Saad sets up a makeshift operating table next to his bed. He readies a syringe full of painkillers and a scalpel. The bird's leg has to be amputated. Nadim, where's suture? Saad asks Nadim for a suture. Then he puts out the bird and holds the leg taut. The leg is off in minutes. The bird will be all right. It can still fly. As the sun begins to set, most of Old Delhi heads inside for an evening prayer or a meal. A moment of peace hangs in the air, slowing down India's eternal bustle. For the first time today, the black kites have the sky to themselves. For Latitudes, I'm Adam Warner in New Delhi. And that's our show for today. And after all that moving, we're going to take a little time to sit very still now. Hope you will too. And while you're doing that, why don't you check out our website, latitudesradio.org. You could download our podcast and share some of your ideas with us. So stop by. Latitudes is produced by WAMU 88.5 in Washington, D.C. and the Global News Partnership with support from the Park Foundation. Our production team includes Andrea Wenzel, Lita Hartman, and Beverly Abel. Keith Weston is our audio engineer. Our theme music is composed by Plush Interiors. I'm Sabri Beneshore.